Oh, I can use that. Check, check. How about this one, Grace? Our sermon passage is in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34. Follow along in your own Bibles or here up on the display. All right. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting on the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So we started last week's sermon with this question, I think it's appropriate for today as well. What does greatness look like? What does a king look like? What does Jesus want his church and his followers to look like? Uh, I think that's... uh, What these recent stories and parables we've seen in Matthew chapter 19 and 20, that's what they're getting at. Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem uh, for his final week. His crucifixion is a week away. This is the peak, the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. Um, And he knows that he is departing from them. And he wants his disciples, he told them in our passage last week, he knows he's going to be arrested He's going to be condemned, flogged, crucified. And he wants them to know and have a clear picture of who they are to be when he's gone. Uh, What I'm fascinated by is this is the last uh, real miracle Jesus performs in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's, it's somewhat significant. It's the last thing he does before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So why does Matthew include this story right before Jesus' triumphal entry? I mean, as miracles go, it's it's a little, you know, ordinary. (laughs) Healing two blind people, beggars, on the side of the road. It seems that Matthew could have foregone this miracle. I mean, let's get on with the story. Let's get on to the triumphal entry. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. But I believe he includes the story here very purposefully in order to show us what Jesus has been teaching us over the last chapter and a half. If you recall, Jesus has uh, addressed the rich young ruler. He's talked to his disciples about the the last being first and the first being last. He said in the one verse earlier, he said, the son of man did did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the perfect teacher and practitioner. We all tend to lean one way or the other. Uh, 
We love to get into the theory. We love to do the studying and the reading and understanding, but we may not be as good at, at putting it into action. Others are all about the action, but, but little about the teaching. Jesus, of course, gives us the perfect balance of both. He's going to put into action what he's been teaching us for a couple chapters. So three points as we walk through the passage this morning. First, uh, we see Jesus' mission priorities. What's important to him? Second, we see Jesus' heart for relationship. And third, we see Jesus' compassion for fallen human beings. All right, first, Jesus' mission priorities. Let's look at the first few verses again. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The, son, the, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them. All right, as I said, Jesus is at the height of his popularity and influence. We're told a great crowd is following him. Why? Well, because they've, they've heard of what Jesus has done. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching, and he is heading towards Jerusalem. They believe that he is the Messiah. He, they believe he is the son of David. Son of David was the Hebrew way of naming the Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne of David. The anticipation is palpable. Uh, they believe the Messiah is about to arrive on the scene to declare himself the rightful king of the Jews to take his seat of power. And in some ways, they're right. The Messiah is coming to Jerusalem. He is about to be, clear, be declared the king of the Jews. But in some pretty significant ways, they're wrong also about what's about to happen. But either way, this is Jesus' moment. And as he leaves Jericho, right, this is the last little town uh, on his trek to Jerusalem, right? We'll see in the very next passage, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So as he's heading out, these two blind men uh, cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, every word in this cry is significant, if you kind of know the background. Uh, only true followers of Jesus call him Lord in the Gospel of Matthew. This is, this is a hint that Matthew is giving us in this, that these are uh, informed believers. They've heard about who Jesus is. They know that he has mercy on the needy. This is their chance. But they also call him son of David. They, they give him this this high and elevated title of Messiah, Lord, Messiah, have mercy on us. Again, these are informed words of faith. They have heard of Jesus, wonders. Now is their chance to have an audience with him, and they cry out. But what's interesting is the crowd's response. These are Jesus' other followers, all right? What do they do? They rebuke these men. Hush! Be quiet! The master doesn't have time for you. This is his moment. He's heading into Jerusalem. This is our, this is our time. We're going to make Israel great again. 
set her up among all the other nations, throw Rome down. Why, why would they do this? Well, we've seen it before, right? As a respected rabbi, Jesus is not supposed to take time for certain types of people who are beneath him, right? Like, the, like when the disciples uh, rebuked the parents for bringing the little children to him in chapter 19, like the Samaritan woman Jesus speaks to at a well, like the woman caught in adultery, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of times when Jesus speaks to people that surprise others. Surely Jesus doesn't have time for these beggars. That's their expectation. That's their priority. What's, what's most important to the crowd is Jesus' fame, is Jesus' power, is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Well, we've all probably been accosted by uh, some homeless person or homeless persons in our lives. I mean, how do we feel when people come up to us? We know what they're going to ask. Uh, sometimes we avert our eyes. We, we don't make eye contact. We may, may walk to the other side of the street. Uh, we may just say, uh, no, not today, sorry, and, and, and shuffle on. Uh, you know, when homeless stop us, it, uh, it cramps our style, right? It takes up time. It gets in our way. It's such an annoyance. I mean, what are we going to do anyway for these people? If I give them a dollar, if I even give them $10, they're probably just going to use it on alcohol. I really can't do anything. It be it's better if I just move on and not, uh, not get waylaid by this person I can't really do anything for. But Jesus does stop. Why does Jesus stop? Jesus stops because of his missional priorities. It's what he's taught through multiple parables, through direct teaching to his disciples in these last few chapters, but the whole of the gospel, that he has come to be a servant. He is this incredible juxtaposition that still to this day is hard for us as human beings to wrap our minds around. He is the rightful king of the Jews. He is the rightful king of the universe. And yet he will stop and talk to blind beggars. Remember, in the Jewish culture, it was assumed that if you were poor or if you were uh, crippled or mentally handicapped in some way, that this was a result of, of your sin. This was your fault. This was a way of, of justifying or, or passing by those in need. But Jesus stops and he shows what it means to be the servant king, the one who did not come to be served but to serve. He came to seek and to save the lost. And the ironic thing in this passage that we must not miss is the fact that the only people who truly see Jesus for who he is are the blind men. You see, it's those who know that they are blind, who know that they are in need, who see Jesus for who he is, the merciful Lord. I mean, think about it. If they bought into the crowd's understanding of themselves, if they listened to those voices, oh, we're just we're just worthless beggars. They would, have, they would have said, oh yes, Jesus, 
just pass us by. We're not worthy of your time. But they knew who Jesus was. They knew that their need is what drew him to them. And so even as they were rebuked, they cried out all the more. Again, a sign of informed faith. Nothing should get in the way of our pursuit of Jesus. Don't let those voices shout you down. (laughs) Uh, So here's a question for us to ask. One, we see Jesus' missional priorities, but two, as we see this crowd, we need to ask, who do we hold back from Jesus through our actions, our attitudes, our prejudices? When we go to work, when we interact with our neighbors, when we raise our children or love our families, do we see ourselves as ambassadors for the kingdom of God, representatives of God, of, of our Lord? Or do we think, well, that's my private life. This is, these are the decisions I make for my good and the good of my family. Those two things are separate, my life, my faith. Jesus shows us that, that all of life and all of faith is one. I mean, all of us, we, can, we all have stories or, or things of Christians acting badly, right? And Jesus calls us to think about how our actions impede others. Whatever we're doing in our lives, whatever job we have, Jesus sets before us this model of servanthood. Wherever you are, God will provide for you people to serve. Be it in your home, in your neighborhood, in your office, your place of business or work, your family. Remember, Jesus, the rightful king of the Jews, was willing to stop and serve beggars. And so Matthew here tells us to go and do likewise. Okay, second, we see Jesus' heart for relationship in this interaction. What does he do next? Uh, As he stops, he calls them to himself, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Uh, A number of commentators, a number of pastors have noted that Jesus has this tendency to see and to interact with, to, to have conversations with those who are in need. Why? Why would he enter into conversation with them? Why would he ask? Isn't it obvious what they want? Uh, But the reason is that Jesus didn't just come to fix problems. He came to enter into relationship with those he came to save. Think about it. Jesus could have simply snapped his fingers and healed these blind men. Uh, God himself didn't have to take on flesh and walk among us. The incarnation didn't have to happen. And yet God chose that path of incarnation, of coming to walk among us, of of loving us, of knowing us. And it's that divine inclination, that divine motivation that we see in Jesus here. I mean, this is a point often pointed out. Jesus didn't heal all the needy people who were alive in his day. All the needy people in Capernaum, let alone Jerusalem or Israel. Why? Because what was more important, all the healings and all the miracles and everything Jesus did was meant to point us to a deeper truth, a deeper reality that he came to accomplish, which is relationship, 
between us and God. It's that sin that separates us from God that creates all these problems, this discord, this, these maladies, these illnesses. And Jesus said, this is what I've come to do, to eradicate sin, to defeat the kingdom of the enemy, and to welcome you back into relationship with your Father. Listen to these words of Paul Miller. He says, Jesus takes the time to ask the blind men what they want. Shouldn't this be obvious? Why not just heal the men and get on to the next beggar? For a brief moment, Jesus goes inside the blind man's, the blind men's skin. Asking questions slows us down and puts us in other people's worlds, hearing their words, their expressions, and their desires. We become the learner rather than the expert. You see, not only does Jesus stop his parade <laughs> to help these blind beggars, culturally insignificant in their day, but he takes time to speak with them, to know them, and to enter into relationship with them. This, this illustration is probably too old at this point, which just con I continue to age myself, but anybody remember Princess Diana, right? Not too old? Okay, thank you, Lee. We're about, we're about the same age. You may not remember or know the cultural impact that Princess Diana had, and the reason was because she was a royal. She, was, she married into the royal family uh, of England, but she had this incredible ability to connect with common people, to hold, uh, hold sick children, to converse with AIDS victims, to, to uh, connect this royal power with the common person. And so when she died in this tragic car accident, the world mourned uh, in this incredible way. And it was because she uniquely was able to basically bring heaven and earth together. And that's what Jesus was doing in his love for people. Um, he wanted to know the people he was serving. Um, sorry, I'm losing my place here. So this should shape our mercy and care as well. Mercy is more than just a few dollars uh, given to someone when you come off the interstate. Right? Jesus didn't just save us and move on, right? even though sometimes we wish that's what he did. <laughs> no, he wants to enter into relationship with us. He knows us, and he wants us to know him. Too often, like the crowd, uh, we want the benefits that Jesus offers without the uncomfortable grittiness that he was all too willing to get into himself. This is one of the great things, I think, about living in a neighborhood like East Atlanta. Right? We live among the poor. Uh, just walk around, and you will be asked for something, I promise, within 10 minutes. Uh, there are a number, number of homeless folks who live and uh, walk around and, and just kind of camp out in East Atlanta. And because of that, because this is our neighborhood, we have opportunity to build relationships with the poor around us. Uh, not to just have sort of transactional relationships, but to have an actual relationship. Uh, and I know I'm not unique in this, but I can, I can name a handful of people that I have relationship simply from living in the neighborhood. Nikki is a woman I've known for years in the neighborhood. She, know I, she knows I won't give her cats, 
cash, but on occasion I'll buy her a meal and she'll tell me what's going on. And uh, someday I know her moods. I can see her coming 100 yards away and um, have an opportunity to get to know her. Mr. Aaron does a lot of odd jobs in the neighborhood and he always keeps his eyes on uh, the kids of the neighborhood in a good way. Uh, and he's, he, he sees himself as a protector of the neighborhood. Um, there's a guy named Elijah. He's mentally handicapped. He does not speak intelligible English, uh, but he comes by our house once a quarter uh, to just talk for 15, well, as much time as you'll give him. Um, the sheriff of East Atlanta, I talked about him back in the fall. Uh, he, was, he was around 10 years ago, and he's back. Thankfully, he doesn't wear a cowboy hat anymore. He doesn't try to make citizens arrests anymore, but, but he's back in the neighborhood. Um, and these are things you really can't do in the suburbs or in gated communities. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to live in those places, but it does highlight the opportunities that we have where we live. To be the church is to be a sign of the coming kingdom as Jesus himself was. And the sign is shown through acts of love and compassion, of charity, self-sacrifice, and grace, a giving without expecting anything in return, because this is how our God loves us. And often it's our busy schedule that cuts us off from seeing the poor and the needy among us. And so Jesus models uh, taking time to walk, leaving margin in our day to be able to stop and talk with those you see. Uh, never give anyone help without asking them their name. Have a conversation with them. And especially if it's in the place where you live, someone you may see, again, you can do it in little chunks. You don't have to have this hour-long conversation with a homeless person next time you see them. But open your eyes to the reality that they are creatures created in the image of God. And as a final note here, uh, this can be done anywhere, too. This, is, this can be done in the workplace. Right? I think we've, we've learned enough about ourselves to realize that all of us are, are blind beggars in our own way. Right? It's not always a socioeconomic reality. There are hurting and needy people where you go to work, uh, in your family, and it's, we can be a sign of God's kingdom by, by taking that time, by leaving those margins in those other places as well. Okay, third and finally, we see in Jesus' interaction with these two homeless men his deep compassion for fallen humanity. So not only do we see his priority to serve rather than to be served and his heart for relationship, we see his compassion. Listen to verses 33 and 34. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Um, so here we're told it was in pity that Jesus touched their eyes. Uh, well, what we know is that Jesus doesn't have to touch in order to heal, right? There's that, there's that great uh, interaction Jesus has with a Gentile, actually, uh, whose daughter was sick, and Jesus said, come, I'll heal her. And he says, no, Lord, just say the word and my daughter will be healed, right? And he's amazed by this faith. And so we learn that Jesus doesn't have to do anything other than will someone to be healed. And yet we're told here, Matthew explicitly says that he felt pity and he touched 
their eyes. Now, this word, the Greek word for pity is uh, splagnos. It's the verb form of splagnos, which is just a great word. That's why I want to say it. Splagnos. Can you say splagnos? That's right. That's the Greek word for your guts, your intestines. It's kind of, it's this area. And, and, and in, in uh, Greek parlance, this is really the seat of the emotions, right? We, the, the English equivalent would say Jesus' heart went out to this, these men. They're saying he, they felt it in his gut. He, he felt for them. He felt pain. He felt pity. He felt love and compassion. And so what did he do? He touched them, something he didn't need to do. But he was drawn to them in love and compassion. He was, he was compelled to express his humanity, a desire for closeness through touch. And touch can be such a powerful blessing to people, right? And, and we all know that touch can be a weapon that's, that's used poorly, that can, uh, that can harm others. But that's because it, it is also just as good an opportunity to show love, a a simple gesture of compassion or closeness. So what does this show us? Listen, I love this quote from Pierre Bernard. He says, Jesus heals by touching. This is characteristic of Matthew, who loves to show Jesus joining the deed to the word, serving people with his hands. It It is a touching at once sovereign and delicate, without complex acts, or formulas. I love the way he describes that because it reminds us that this isn't like a magic spell, right? Jesus doesn't have to get all the pieces together and say the right words and do it in the right ways. Jesus can do it however he wants. And so by touching these men, he shows love and compassion for them. And when we are kind and we are patient, when we are, to, are willing to suffer with others, right? that's what compassion means, literally, to suffer with, we become a conduit of God's power and grace as well. Now, Jesus had the power to heal. Right? He knew that he could answer these men's direct requests. And we, as far as I know, do not have that ability. Right? Some people claim to have the ability to heal others, and maybe that's absolutely true. But as far as I know, we don't have that power. But when we are willing to count ourselves, others, as more significant than ourselves, worthy of love and time, willing to be with those who suffer, even without words, God does amazing things. If you're like me, often we avoid hurting people, needy people, be they like the homeless people on the street or depressed co-workers because we can't see how we have anything to offer. We can't fix them. And yet this is not what God is asking us to do. Simply a willingness to be with, to speak with, to listen to, to be the presence of God. This is the meaning of incarnation. What an incredible invitation Jesus gives us that he was the son of God in human flesh when we will be his followers and will love those in need around us, we become the incarnate love of God for them. And it is through that love and patience, that willingness to be with, to suffer with, that God uses to heal 
console, to love, and to save. Beloved, Jesus is heading to the cross. And if we want to understand the cross, we have to understand his healing miracles. If we want to understand his healing miracles, we have to understand the cross. But as Jesus goes, he models for us who he is so that we can know who we are to be in this world as his followers. We are to be about his missional priorities. We're to have his heart for relationship and his heart of compassion for the needy. Amen. Our Father and our God, Lord, uh, this is hard. It is scary <laughs> to love the needy who ask a lot of us. We don't often know what to do, what we have to offer. And yet, Lord Jesus, you give us an incredible picture here of what it looks like to be a servant. And so, Holy Spirit, would you fill everyone in this room, would you fill this church with the spirit of servanthood, so that we might look like Jesus, be ambassadors of your kingdom, and that through the love of your people, others might come in and become followers of Christ with us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the service, when we bring our tithes and offerings, so we're going to pass these little uh, boxes around. If you give online, this is an opportunity to